Hi, I'm Melissa Urban, and you're listening to Do The Thing, a podcast where we explore what's been missing every time you've tried to make a change and make it stick. Today, I'm bringing back one of my favorite guests, licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Vicki Bhatia, to talk about something I've been doing inside my own head for years, making up fights with people and playing them out in great detail. I'll play out a fight with my child's father, with my mom, with Brandon, or a total stranger at the grocery store. I will make up a scenario that literally hasn't happened. And then I will behave inside my brain and in my body as if it has and just start arguing with them inside my head for minutes at a time. And I will do this until something inside me snaps and I remember this isn't real and it hasn't happened and there is no real threat and I could just stop. Brandon is the one who first observed and named this phenomenon. He calls it getting hypothangry, hypothetically angry. He first noticed it oh, a couple years ago, one day in the gym, when I was going on and on about how my child's father might react when I shared some news with him. He let me talk for like two or three minutes because he's a good boyfriend and a good listener. And then he kind of interrupted me and said, so like none of this has happened though, right? And you don't know that this is going to happen. So maybe you could just wait and see what happens before getting all worked up. Yeah, okay. He had a point there. And it was in that moment that I became aware of just how often I do this. And I didn't know why. It's not like these fights were all fights I'd had before and I was replaying them. Most of these were actually brand new scenarios that had never happened. And it's not like in my head, I played these fights out until they resolved amicably and peacefully. No, the longer I had imaginary fights with people, the worse the fight got. And I could feel it in my body. I would get tense. I would get angry. It felt like my breathing became more shallow. My blood pressure went up. Even worse, if I was having this hypothangry moment with Brandon or my sister or my mom, someone actually in my life, I would begin behaving towards them as if this fight was real. And they would have no idea why I would be mad. Of course they don't. It was all in my head. This behavior was like a total mystery to me, but I knew there had to be something to it. So I hit up Dr. Vicky Bhatia in the DMs. I said to her, hey, doc, if I wanted to have a discussion about why people created hypothetical situations in their head and then get mad about them and then start to behave towards those people as if those totally not real situations are happening, might you have some insights into that? I didn't even bother to add asking for a friend because she knew I was not asking for a friend. It turns out Dr. Bhatia does have a whole episode worth of insights into that. Today, we'll talk about getting hypothangry, and we'll cover relationships, trauma, coping mechanisms, and cognitive distortions. We'll talk about anger, what it is, why it manifests, how it can help, and how it can harm, or at the very least, cover up what's really happening. 
She'll explain how judgment and social norms play in, why uncertainty and anxiety are currently at the helm of so many of our behaviors in the middle of this pandemic, and the two most common triggers for this cousin of catastrophizing. And finally, because above all, this is a podcast devoted to the practical application of making change stick, Dr. Bhatia will lay out a plan for identifying, interrupting, and moving on gracefully from this behavior that most certainly is not serving you. I joked at one point that this felt like my own personal therapy session, but it wasn't really a joke. I share pretty openly and vulnerably some of my own not-so-proud moments and judgments in the name of shining a light on the ugly stuff that we don't always want to name or see so that we can accept, process, and move on in growth. I encourage you to do the same, or at the very least, listen with curiosity and not judgment for others and for yourself. Now on to the episode. Dr. Vicki Batia, welcome back to Do The Thing. Thank you for having me back. I'm so excited to talk to you. We've been talking about this subject via Instagram DM for probably two months now, and I knew you were the perfect one. But before I get into my own private therapy session, which is maybe <laughs> what this is going to turn into, the first question I ask all of my guests is, what's your thing? So my thing broadly is helping people become more aware of their emotions and the various ways that we react and cope with them. See, and that is so perfect for what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to indulge you with a little story first to kind of set up why we're here. I was in the drive-thru line the other day at my coffee place, and I wear my mask through the drive-thru. I'm outside, but I can't be six feet away, and they're seeing hundreds of customers a day, and it makes me feel more comfortable to have my mask on, and I I think it might make them feel more comfortable. So I roll through the drive-thru with my mask on, and on my way out in my car with my mask on, I pass a guy in his car without a mask. He's in his car, no big deal. But he has an American flag kind of hanging out of the back of his Jeep, and we catch eye contact as I drive away. And I spend the next five minutes in a hypothetical fight with this man. I imagine what he's going to say to me about my mask. I imagine he's going to call me a sheep and he's going to baw at me. I imagine the retort that I'm going to say back at him. We get, I mean, I am really getting into this hypothetical fight that I'm having with him about masks and it probably spills over into Black Lives Matter. And and then before I know it, five minutes has gone by and I'm home getting ready to work and none of this has happened. And Brandon has a name for that. He calls it getting hypothangry, like hypothetically angry. And this is what I want to talk to you about. First of all, is this normal? Is this a thing that people do or is it just me? <laughs> it is It is definitely a thing that people do. It, it comes up in lots of different contexts. And I see it a lot with the couples that I work with. What we are talking about is getting angry over situations that have not happened. Sometimes it's with people in our lives. Sometimes it's with total strangers. Do you have a real name for it or can we keep calling it hypothangry? <laughs> you can you can call it that. We would call it, I guess, like in couples therapy, we would call it anticipatory ang- anger. Yeah. Is that what it is? Is it another form of anxiety or is it some kind of cognitive distortion? So, so I think we actually have to take a step back and, and just think about like what anger is more broadly. And so, you know, anger is an emotion and just like all emotions, we experience anger for really valid reasons. And I think of emotions just as kind of communication mechanisms or tools for us. 
And so, you know, just like sadness alerts me to loss or anxiety alerts me to danger, anger alerts me to injustice. And so when we are kind of anticipating like an offense or a slight or some kind of injustice, some harm or pain, it makes a lot of sense that we would then sort of start to prepare for that possibility or that that event. Um, and anger comes up in that sense. You say you see it a lot in your couples therapy. Without, of course, giving away personal information, what are some of the kinds of things that you see? So in couples, I often see that there is a relational sensitivity that gets activated. And that can be a whole variety of different things. Maybe that's not feeling good enough. Maybe that is not feeling important to our partner. Um, but sometimes it's easier to mask that, the emotion that comes along with those thoughts. Those emotions, you know, can be sadness or disappointment, guilt, shame. And, and those are really uncomfortable to feel. Sometimes it's actually easier to fight about it than it is to be vulnerable about it. You know, it's really hard to go to your partner and, and say some of these things to say, you know, I feel lonely or I don't think that I'm good enough for you. And it's a lot easier to attack or kind of create a scenario in our head where we have to defend ourselves because that eliminates some of the vulnerability. Okay. So that's really interesting. I had a therapist and I talk for a long time about this idea of like rehearsing for disaster or these hypothetical fights because it made me feel more prepared when the actual or if the actual event were to happen, except that when it did happen, I didn't feel any more prepared. Is that kind of a a fair, almost fallacy that we have in our heads that these fights are going to really help us prep for when someone does call us a sheep in a grocery store. And then when it happens, none of that hypothetical anger makes a difference. Yes, yes. I think that, you know, rehearsing disaster and this anticipatory anger are really similar in lots of ways. Um, I think one of the differences is that oftentimes with rehearsing disaster, we're talking about and we're sort of worried about a certain outcome. And so we're anticipating needing to prepare to manage our own anxiety in the moment. Whereas with the anger piece, oftentimes it's a discomfort with vulnerability. And so if we think about anger, anger is at least in the moment, it is devoid of vulnerability. It is sort of empowering and it um, can make us feel strong or uh, capable of of doing things. And, And so it reduces that discomfort momentarily, but it can actually end up creating different conflicts or other situations that are problematic. So there's so much, there's so much I want to get into. So the idea of vulnerability, and I can absolutely see in a relationship, I do a lot of this sometimes with my son's dad, I'll anticipate a conversation we're going to have and that I think it might be hard and I'll imagine the discussion or the discourse we have in our head. But I'm also doing this with total strangers. How does strangers fit into this hypothetically angry situation? So our brain is always trying to figure out or predict what's going to happen next. So we pull on data that we have from past experiences, but also experiences that we have by proxy. So things that we see, um, things that we have read or heard. And so if we start to kind of put people uh, into certain categories or label them. So, for example, if we say, you know, that man with the flag Uh belongs to a certain group of person, we can start to anticipate how 
they may be different than us, how we, they may sort of come up with criticism or blame towards us. And we're going to start reacting towards that. Oh my God. I'm covering my eyes right now, like the monkey in shame, because it is, you're right. It, it was incredibly judgmental of me to make an assumption. And also I have had observations just on social media of this incident happening to other people. It's never happened to me. It hasn't happened to anyone I know, but I've heard of it. It's like, you know, I saw on Facebook that it happened to someone. And now all of these predisposed notions and judgments and also all of my anxiety around the current situation, our social justice situation, our health situation, the pandemic, it like all snowballs into this perfect storm of now I'm fighting with the guy in the Jeep in my mm -hmm. head. Absolutely. And I think it's really, it's also important to remember that we all make judgments. And so, you know, making a judgment is not, is not inherently problematic. It's kind of what we do in response to that. So if we can kind of catch ourselves doing that, then we have the opportunity to make a more deliberate decision rather than kind of automatically getting caught into like a, a cycle that we don't feel like we have control over. Yeah, I, dif I did not have control over it because it was like I woke up five minutes later only when I said to myself, Melissa, what are you doing? Like this conversation didn't happen. He didn't give like none of this happened. What it makes me think about is this idea of anger. And you've talked about, about anger and how it's sort of this blanket emotion where there's so much that can be underneath anger, but anger burns so bright and so fast and so hot. And the other piece of it is that anger is very distracting. It allows me to focus on this all-consuming like fireball of feeling without actually addressing what's happening underneath. Yes. So anger does not exist in a vacuum. It is possible to have anger and many other emotions all at once. Um, and so when we try to make sense of kind of what's going on, it's a lot easier to focus on things that are external to us than it is to focus internally at times. Um, and part of it is that a lot of us are not really taught how to acknowledge our emotions, how to make sense of them, how to react to them. There's a lot of messaging that we get in our families growing up and society about what emotions are acceptable and how we can express them. And so anger is one of the emotions where it can be kind of easier to hold on to because it feels um, it feels more empowering. It sort of motivates us to towards action, whereas some other emotions like sadness or shame shut us down and paralyze us, which is a lot harder to sometimes deal with. But does anger really motivate us to take productive action? And this is something I've been thinking a lot about with our like outrage culture. And I've done some research into like why we're all so outraged right now. You know, anger and outrage can be a substitution. It can make you feel like you're taking action without actually doing the hard work of doing something productive in the area. And it makes me wonder, does anger spark good action, productive action, action that actually benefits us? It can. And, and that's sort of the, the positive side of anger, because like we talked about, like all emotions, we have them for a reason and they're valid reasons to have anger. Right. So if you or someone that you care about is being you know threatened or is potentially going to be hurt, um, that anger is really powerful in potentially kind of um, managing that situation in a, in a sort of positive to get to a positive outcome. But you're right. I think that um, we also see that that anger can be kind of quick and fleeting and uh, 
it makes us sometimes feel like we are doing something without actually taking productive action towards something. It's true. And I think sometimes, you know, I don't, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world right now, and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know what to do about the people with difference of opinion around the virus and what's helpful and what isn't helpful. The people who have a different opinion about whether you send the kids back to school or not. I don't know what to do about that. There's this huge kind of us against them mentality that I see floating around so much right now. And because I don't know what to do, and I have all these big emotions that I don't know what to do with, do I just get angry at people in my head instead? (laughs) Sometimes it might be easier, right? So it's really hard to feel that sort of uncertainty and to feel maybe um, kind of like helpless and to not know what to do, like feeling, we don't like feeling powerless. And so anger is, is sometimes again, kind of that like mask to the other emotions that um, kind of at least momentarily feels more comfortable. Now, of course, if we act on that anger and create more drama or conflict, then that actually can kind of induce even more negative emotions after the fact, right? So we might've been feeling kind of anxious or powerless to begin with, And then we lashed out at somebody and now we feel on top of that, we feel guilt or shame. So we've actually compounded kind of the negative emotions that we're feeling. It is like you were at my house two weeks ago because that's exactly what happened. I've been having a lot more of these hypothangry conversations in my head lately. I'm stressed. I'm anxious. There's a lot going on. And at one opportunity in person, I did lash out and I behaved in such an uncharacteristically rude way. And I, I mean, it kept me up for three nights the way I spoke to this other person. I was entirely my fault. I sincerely apologized, didn't try to make excuses for it, but all of this hypothetical anger in my head spilled over into the real world and I harmed someone. And that makes me feel terrible. And then I feel like I am stuck in that cycle. Absolutely. And I think that it it, it is a really difficult cycle to sometimes get out of, especially when we are in it. And the sort of interesting thing is that we also, when we when we experience anger, we secrete adrenaline and norepinephrine, which also kind of dampens our pain response. And so sometimes getting angry also momentarily makes that emotional pain a little bit less. And so it can become, and then once we do that, it sort of becomes reinforced and it can become kind of our default way of handling emotional pain if we don't have other strategies in place for how we deal with those things. That makes so much sense. It really does. I guess we only do something if we're getting a benefit from it. And you did just explain a lot of the subconscious benefits. But when I really stop to think about them, they are not actually benefiting me. This behavior is not serving me in the long run for reasons I just outlined. And if it's not serving me, I would really love to find a way to interrupt this process. How do I, how can I be aware that this kind of process is beginning? So one of the things that I work on with my couples is starting to identify like what relational sensitivities we might have that may get activated that we then use anger to sort of mask or deal with. Um, So starting to kind of think about like, what are some of our sensitivities? Are there certain beliefs or certain, um, kind of messages that we have told ourselves or other people have told us that when those get activated, those are really painful and we, we may turn to anger as a response. 
the other piece of this is that if we have experienced interpersonal trauma, all of this is heightened. So it's kind of like we are on high alert for the data or the evidence that's going to confirm those beliefs. And so we pay more attention to those those cues. We sometimes um, take neutral information and interpret it with a negativity kind of bias. So this is where like, you know, picking up on like a tone or an attitude can sometimes come in play. And that is made even more difficult when we don't necessarily know the person or when there are more ambiguous cues. So like something online or on social media, we don't have the context of how the person is saying it or um, those kinds of cues that may sort of um, alert us to whether or not we're interpreting it in an accurate kind of way. That makes a lot of sense because I can think every single time I'm thinking back to a specific example of me doing this in the last couple of weeks, there's been some kind of trigger. And sometimes it has been picking up on those cues, like you mentioned, and making like a snap judgment. Other times it is grounded in this interpersonal trauma or drama, if it's not quite as you know severe as trauma, where with my child's dad, obviously we're divorced. There's a lot of baggage there. And with my mom, there's a lot of baggage there. And so mm-hmm. sometimes it can be situational, but sometimes it can be like, I can almost guarantee that it's going to happen because I have this particular relationship with this person and we have this kind of discord in between us. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, again, it's about recognizing the first piece of all of this is like having that awareness because we can't sort of start to modify those things if we're not aware of even what's going on for us. And for for many of us, um, having that emotional awareness in and of itself is a huge step because so many of us um, don't, like I said, don't, don't aren't taught that. We don't sort of learn ways of sort of coping with that. And the other piece is that, especially with anger, um, there are differences um, in who who's allowed to express anger or kind of what the messages that we make around that expression of anger. So women, particularly, you know, black women, um, this idea around kind of being like the angry black woman, that stereotype. Yeah, there, there are messages that we get about sort of what's appropriate. And I think that it is important to think about the fact that expressing anger is a privilege. Um, and specifically in, in, you know, certain situations where, where that, uh, may not be received the same way, depending on who is expressing that anger, right? So if we think about, you know, I, I always have this like image in my head of certain white male politicians in Senate, um, you know, kind of being up there and yelling and screaming and, and all of that. And it's sort of viewed as, um, acceptable because we as a society have sort of given a certain script um, to to at least white men about kind of what's acceptable in their expression of anger. Um, and that is not necessarily kind of what is allowed for other people. Mm-hmm. When men do it, they're strong. They're mm-hmm. powerful. They're passionate. When women do it, we're hormonal. Yes. I wonder, do you in your practice see women doing this hypothetically angry thing more than men? And if so, is it a result of it's not as safe for me to express my anger in a healthy, productive way? So I I turn it internally. So yes, when we think about anger, so the interesting thing is that men and women do not ex- do not experience anger in sort of different amounts. So they kind of experience anger um, if we were to like survey and, and things like that. Um, all, everyone sort of experiences anger. The difference is, is that 
we have given a script to men about how they can express anger um, through, you know, kind of more maybe aggressive tactics or even violence. Whereas women, the way that we often express um, anger is through kind of relational anger. Um, so it's more of those like catty comments or gossip. Silent or, treatment. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So those sorts of things are kind of the script that we have been given. And when we sort of deviate from that, then a lot of times we are, you know, called certain names or, or things like that. Um, you know, and again, kind of just going back to the angry black woman stereotype for a second, I think it's really important to to remember that like all of those stereotypes and, you know, all of that is is a way of weaponizing their own emotions against them. And it's that stereotype is used to discredit black women. It is used to silence black women, to tell them that they're overreacting. Um, it is it is a way of not giving them sort of equal access to their emotions and their emotional experience as other people get. Yeah, it is in many cases. You're absolutely right. So I'm starting to see now a little bit of a path to, because I recognize that this behavior is not healthy. It does not feel good. It doesn't get me to a place where I feel like I'm operating from my highest self and it can spill over into real areas of my life in a very unproductive and unhealthy way. So I'm starting to see a little bit of a script now for coming out of this. In part, it's awareness. And we talked about that awareness piece, looking at what your triggers might be, whether they're situational or personal. The second piece maybe is like, what am I actually feeling right now? Mm-hmm. Which sounds simple and is not that simple in practice, especially in the moment. <laughs> yeah, sounds simple in theory and and is very difficult. I think especially nowadays, we are so inundated with information and distractions that it becomes really easy to just kind of lose touch with ourselves. And one of the things that I work on um, with clients is really getting into the practice of just checking in with ourselves, you know, being able to start to develop more awareness about kind of what's going on in our body even if we're not able to necessarily label that yet, just having the awareness of it and sort of being able to start to connect those dots is really important. Um, so even if all you can do is kind of label what you're feeling as, you know, positive, neutral, or negative, that's a starting point. So it does it may not be important at the at the start to be able to label the exact emotion. That is something that can kind of come down the road. But even just being able to sort of say, like, I am feeling something. I'm not totally sure what, it's kind of vague in my body, but there's something there that I might need to explore a little bit. Um, sometimes that's actually where the, like, the richest insights actually come up when we're just like on the, the cusp of awareness. I love that. I never thought about that because I think I'm, I've done so much therapy and I try to be so self-aware that in the moment I really try to unpack the whole thing. And that can be very overwhelming and very frustrating. So I like this like positive, negative, or neutral The other thing I think I try to ask myself or acknowledge to myself is just the very simple, I've been triggered. Something came up and I can tell that I've been triggered because everything physically in my body goes on high alert. My breathing gets more shallow. My muscles tense up. I go from like zero to 60, like in a heartbeat. And that's my like, oh, something just came up and like triggered the crap out of you. And Mm -hmm. even acknowledging that can help me see what's happening in my body. Yes. One of the things, so I am, I am a fan of journaling and um, the research on journaling is really cool and interesting. Um, but I also hear from a lot of people, I don't have time to do that, or I'm just not going to sit down and actually do it. 
So sometimes in those moments or, or when you are, or start to become aware of it, even just taking like a voice memo and almost like stream of consciousness, like what am I feeling? What am I thinking? What's going on right now? And then save it and come back to it a couple days later. Don't, don't try to like necessarily unpack it in the moment. And over time, if you do this, you know, and you start to see some patterns, then that sort of provides the foundation for where do I need to maybe explore or look at this a little bit more. And if you can identify in the moment something, even if it's just, I'm feeling so insecure, I'm feeling so anxious, I'm feeling really worried about, you know, going back to school or being in public right now in a grocery store, like, what do you do with that? I guess the answer is you just have to like accept it and acknowledge it and sit in it. But is there something a little more, I don't know, concrete you can give me? So depends on kind of what ends up actually coming up, right? I I think that oftentimes what I see is that anger is sort of masking, you know, these emotions like sadness and anxiety, and then being able to sort of unpack those and sort of say, like, what do I do with this? We want to sort of make a distinction of not like avoiding our emotions. So not necessarily like disengaging and like forgetting about them. But we also do need to be aware that like, you know, sometimes we don't have the the time or the capacity to sort of unpack it all in that moment, right? So if I um, am in a work meeting and my boss says something, I can't necessarily react and or stop and walk away and unpack it all in that moment. Um, So that's where like some of those just like in the moment sort of coping strategies of like deep breathing or being able to kind of ground ourselves into like the present awareness um, can be really helpful in just getting through that so that later we can kind of come back to it in a more kind of nuanced and thoughtful way. I like that. I actually sometimes will use a technique where I'll say like, find three blue things in the room. It's so simple and I don't need to do anything with them. I just need to find them. This monitor is blue. My bracelet is blue. And it's just something to bring me back to the present moment and give me like just a little bit of buffer around what just came up for me. Yes. Yeah. So we often talk about there's a grounding technique called like the five, four, three, two, one technique. And that's, you know, kind of what you're talking about is maybe even more simplistic and even better uh, because it's really just focusing on kind of one part of that. But the idea is that you would take, you know, you would say like, what are five things that I can see in my immediate environment? What are four things that I can feel? So that might be like the clothes against my skin or, you know, the chair um, against my, you know, my back. Um, what are, you know, three things that I hear, you know, two things that I smell and one thing that I taste and don't get sort of caught up in like, what if I can't smell two different things? Like just move on to the next one and and just use it as a way of kind of cycling, uh, through that exercise, but it's a way of refocusing on the present moment. Yeah. I, that, I like that. And it buys you some, buys you a little bit of capacity. It buys you like some space, I think. Another part to this then could be, especially if that you're talking about having this hypothangry situation come up in a relationship, is then how can I now take what was in my head in a really unproductive way and express it in a more productive way in my real life? And that I feel like has got to be the hardest part of all. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, to be able to do this first, there has to be, you know, emotional and physical safety. And so, Um, you know, sometimes in couples therapy, like that is a big piece of it that we have to kind of establish that foundation of safety, because if we're not feeling safe to express those vulnerable thoughts and emotions, then, um, just sort of pushing yourself into that situation to do it can actually create more pain and harm. Um, 
you know, so it may, it may be even just like starting by like testing the waters, maybe not disclosing everything, but even just starting by saying, you know, in this situation that happened earlier today, um, I was feeling really hurt because I had the thought that when you said this, it actually meant blah, 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 blah. And um, kind of see how that goes before maybe kind of like opening the diary and, and saying everything. That makes sense. You know, I keep thinking about some of these hypothangry situations I have with like total strangers on the street or strangers in the on the internet. And when I do find myself getting into this cycle, is the most gentle thing to do with myself to just become aware of it and then try to drop it in the moment? Yeah. So I think that sometimes just like walking away from it is uh, um, really helpful rather than I think especially on like social media or something like that. And I've done this where it's really easy to get into a back and forth and just be like shooting off responses. Right. And I think that sometimes the actual, the more productive thing is to just like disengage um, because sometimes we, I think that kind of just the way that we are using screens nowadays um, can really distract us from actually being able to identify like what's going on for us. We we can fall into the trap of all these different sorts of things, right? So we can, instead of sort of saying like, I was triggered and I'm feeling anxious, it becomes a lot easier to try to, you know, maybe throw like data or articles or something like that as a response. Yeah, you double and, down. <laughs> yeah, instead of being able to actually like deal with what's going on for you. How do I walk away from the inside of my own head? Because I'm now I'm arguing with people just inside my head. There's no one else there. So what like do I maybe I physically need to change my environment or maybe I need to do some kind of physical like movement or motion or something to just like get myself out of that mind space. How do you walk away from fights inside your head? So, yeah. So I think that kind of, again, bringing back that awareness to like the present moment and like disengaging with those unhelpful thoughts can be really powerful and also really difficult. So, you know, if there's something that you really can sort of direct your attention towards that is going to be productive, um, kind of doing that instead. The other thing is that we know that emotions, you know, in and of themselves, like emotions are only, they only live for a couple of seconds, but we reactivate them over and over and over. And so we can, I think of it kind of like waves in an ocean, right? So the actual wave, one wave is, is very short, but when we have wave after wave after wave, it can feel more intense. And so sometimes what can be really helpful is just doing something else that's going to induce a different emotion. So if we're feeling really angry, if instead, you know, it, it's really easy to like listen to like angry music and stomp around the house do all those things that reactivate the anger. So instead, if we can maybe listen to something more soothing or um, be really gentle with ourselves and maybe some movement or do something that is going to be the opposite of that anger, whether that is, you know, doing something that's going to elicit maybe, you know, some laughter or some, you know, excitement or interest, whatever that might be, that can actually disrupt that, mm -hmm. that reactivation. I was thinking after the after the guy in the Jeep with no mask situation, like I'm going to be really nice to the next person I happen to see. I'm going to smile. I'm going to wave. I'm going to chit chat with my mailman, like through the door, whatever it looks like, because I that will remind me that like people are good and people are nice and we're all just human and we're all just doing the best we can. And that is exactly the technique you're talking about is just getting a different wave in. Yes. Yeah. That's really, really good. This has been so incredibly helpful. I feel like 
I'm going to get a flood of messages from people who say, I thought I was the only one, or I do this all the time, or I can't believe that this actually has a name that I made up myself, but still. Um, but the last question I ask all my guests is, what's one piece of advice you would give to someone who has been caught in a loop of hypothangry and really wants to break out of it? The first piece is that awareness piece. So whether that is just starting to like jot down a couple of notes when you start to notice that, whether that's making some voice memos to be able to kind of go back after the fact and look for some patterns, um, starting to kind of just gather some data can be really helpful in in starting to identify what those patterns are. Um, and then, you know, if if it's starting to become really destructive, also like thinking about like potential ways of coping with the anger in the moment. What are some of those early flags that maybe you're starting to get really angry? What are things that you can notice in your body um, physiologically? You know, so maybe that's that muscle tension. Maybe that's like starting to feel really flushed or, um, you know, kind of warm, um, whatever that might be. And then starting to check in with yourself so that you develop that awareness at an earlier stage rather than, you know, after the fact when you have lashed out and it's 10 minutes later and now you're dealing with the sort of consequences of that. I like that. And what I'm hearing and what you're saying is a lot of like approaching yourself with curiosity at this point. You mentioned that this is about collecting data in the moment, not like fixing and I'm making quotes around it, what's wrong. And I like that because I have can have so much judgment around myself about why I'm doing this because it's like not necessary and it feels kind of crazy. And I like the idea of approaching it with curiosity. What's happening in my body right now? Why am I feeling like this? Did something happen? Is it a, you know, a, a relationship with this person? I, I think that advice is going to be very helpful for me for sure. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting because when we think about like fixing things, um, I think that that's a very common kind of thing that people jump right into problem solving and trying to fix it. But if we haven't identified what the problem is, then what exactly are we solving? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And honestly, to say that something needs fixing means something is broken and it's not broken. It's just a dysfunction. It's a coping mechanism that's not mm -hmm. working super well for me. And the faster I acknowledge that, wow, I'm like, I got goosebumps because you're, it, that's exactly what it is. Is that a coping mechanism that I have now discovered is not working great for me. So let's find something else. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Vicki Batia, where can people find you and learn more about your work and your practice and your work as a whole 30 certified coach? So the best place is on Instagram. So I'm just at Dr. Vicki Batia. Um, I am, I, I, also, I'm going to be running a September Whole30 group that's going to be in line with the National Whole30. Um, I ran this group last year. It was focused on emotional eating, and it went really well. And um, I'm sort of revising and adding some extra things. So I'm really excited about that. And signups will be on my website, which is just drvickybatia.com. And um, you know, if there's any questions, feel free to reach out to me either via email or DM. Excellent. We'll make sure to include all of those in your show notes. I know your last September Whole30 group was so well-received. There are so many people who need help around this idea of food freedom and emotional eating and what perfect person to lead them through that than you. Dr. Vicki Bhatia, thank you so much for joining me again, a repeat performance on Do The Thing. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me today on Do The Thing. You can continue the conversation with me at Melissa U on Instagram. If you have a question for Dear Melissa or a topic idea for the show, leave me a voicemail at 321-209-1480. 
Do The Thing is part of the Onward Project, a family of podcasts brought together by Gretchen Rubin all about how to make your life better. Check out the other Onward Project podcasts, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, Side Hustle School, Happier in Hollywood, and Everything Happens. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, leave a five-star review, and tell your friends to do the thing. See you next week. From the Onward Project.